Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, episode 39, the Ancestral Autoimmune Protocol. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio. If you're uh, coming back, thanks for joining us again. And if this is your first time here, welcome. I'm Anthony Santa and in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith. Michael, how are you today? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm uh, surrounded by wires. Me too, strangely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Michael and I are on a bit of a podcast adventure today. We have uh, uh, an audio recording as well as a video recording, uh, as well as uh, headphones and a whole bunch of wires and plugs and lights and all kinds of things to make this podcast experience that much more interesting for us. And hopefully it will be for you too. So you can see us uh, laughing and talking and <laughs> hi everybody <laughs> making sense of all this stuff. <laughs> now, now at least you can see us and maybe someday we'll get to meet you and see you too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, episode 39 today, we're talking about something that is um, a little bit out of my realm. So I'm happy to be asking you questions. Um, podcasts in the past recently, what have we talked about? We've talked about everything from, uh, uh, medicinal cannabis, to uh, meditation, to you name it. Uh, if this is your first time here, please do go through our catalog and take a look at all the different uh, episodes that we've got there. Um, they get from interesting sounding to uh, better sounding to better looking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really going to plug this video thing as much as I can here. I, I like I like the video thing. I mean, I've watched lots of podcasts that have video i've listened to lots that don't and um if i am not driving down the road listening to podcasts which is often what i do i really do enjoy just sitting on my chair or my couch watching podcasts and just i mean just sitting or watching people talk is just as enriching but more connecting than, than just listening so it's it's a great experience and again hi <laughs> <laughs> yeah make sure i'm wearing a clean shirt today or something <laughs> how's my hair <laughs> Which one? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, today's podcast, again. Um, the autoimmune protocol. Right. Sorry. T totally blank there. Autoimmune protocol. Um, I have an idea of what autoimmune means uh, and what protocol means in terms of how you describe it, that sort of things. But this is you talking, not me describing things. What are we talking about today? So there's a reason why I wanted to do this. And I'm just going to be like flat out honest. I've been doing this for 20 couple of years, like 22 years now in the sense of practicing medicine. And most of my focus in medicine is autoimmune disease because I have three of them and, you know, it's not easy. Uh, for the first few years of my practice, I was always giving people handouts going here, just these are the do's and don'ts, follow these, this, you know, uh, kind of list of advice. And a lot of people would go, oh, that's great. You know, how handy. And then I would talk to them a couple of weeks later and ask them, so uh, how are you doing with that protocol? And, you know, are you following those guidelines that are on that piece of paper? And not invariably, but often enough, people will go, oh, yeah, my kid got a hold of that and my dog ate it. And then the crayons covered up the do's <laughs> and don'ts. And then it was behind my fridge for months. And then this, oh, darn it. And I'm teasing, of course. But, um that didn't always go well because people who are just given everything kind of spoon fed in a way, uh, a lot of people just didn't really engage in the process. So then I said, okay, from now on, I'm just going to make people go and look stuff up because at least then, um, 
in the sense of uh, empowerment or feeling enabled or feeling engaged when a patient goes online and types in autoimmune protocol and, you know, or paleo diet or, you know, what's the, what's the beef with eggs? <laughs> what's the eggs with eggs? And uh, then they, when they go online to research and learn, then it's kind of like they've put a little compartment in their mind for that information. So instead of them coming to an appointment with me, which is sometimes two hours long, and I admit that there's a lot of going on in that session. So, you know, it, it is kind of a forgiving thing to just give a person a handout. Um, and it is too much to try and explain it all to people in that period of time, you know. So I thought, well, what a great idea. What I'll do is instead of create more handouts for people, because if you go online right now and type in even AIP, autoimmune protocol, you're going to get to the top 10 most uh engaged websites that are usually going to be around the paleo meme or the autoimmune thing. And you're going to get a list, you know, a beautiful PDF you can print out, uh, put on your fridge of the do's and don'ts with lots of graphics and fun. And I am eventually going to make a little do's and don'ts thing again with lovely graphics. But for now, I thought, why not just do a podcast where people can just go and listen to it. And that way, when I'm in my clinic, I can just say, here's a link, go and listen to this conversation, sit down with a pen and paper, and at your leisure, and at the rate at which you actually can learn and, and consume information and allow it to kind of settle into your life, uh, that's, this is, this is going to be a great resource for people. And also, honestly, I can use this to help me sit down and actually type in <laughs> step by step <laughs> and then hire someone to do the graphics so that we can make a really nice PDF for people. But so you, you, what you're trying to say is that this is the lazy man's way to actually produce <laughs> things to give uh, patients. Well, again, being honest from, you know, Which, the, the inside of my experience. No, no, no judgment, Michael. Just, just saying, you know, just like, saying, just, just saying, just saying. But um, at the same time, I, I did occur to me that if someone only wanted to listen to the first like 20 minutes of the actual process, because that's all they can see changing in their lives, they could stop the recording at whatever number of minutes and then a month later come back and say, okay, I'm ready to commit to the next part. Right. So it's, so it's kind of hopefully going to be laid out that way. Yeah. yeah. And, and autoimmunity is a big deal. So there's probably a lot of people who are naturally going to want to hear about this because statistically one in six people, you know, has an autoimmune disease. Well, so, so on that, you just said a second ago, and we've talked about this in podcasts before, but mm -hmm. uh, we've got some listeners here for the first time. Tell us your story. What's your um, autoimmune disease uh, right. resume look like? <laughs> what a lovely way to think of it. Well, sure, first I got Crohn's disease and then colitis, and eventually, probably in the last two years, I'm starting to show little signs of rheumatic arthritis, nothing... Uh, big and it only comes up if I'm not like super super picky. So I'm no doctor, but maybe you're just getting old. Yeah, don't tell anybody. You're getting old, man. <laughs> Never. <laughs> um, so that's been 25 years of me having to eat and live and be a bit more careful than your average bear, uh, and also being a clinician for over 20 years helping people with the same thing. And you know, this isn't about me; it's about the protocol. 85% of people who have uh, diagnosed conditions uh, that are apparently incurable or untreatable or all you can do is drug them into the corner and make them hide. 85% of people get relatively better, you know, if not completely better. And for me, the, you know, the, for the listener as well, when you're diagnosed with a chronic complex autoimmune disease and you can make the symptoms go away, your doctor will still tell you, yeah, it's just dormant, it'll come back. And that may be true and quite often it is. But that's also a bit disempowering because if you went on, say, this protocol for months, got your immune system to basically chill out and stop, you know, being a bit of a jerk and <laughs> attacking you, and you went to some new town and went to a new doctor to, you know, make sure you were 
covered for insurance or whatever reason, and you didn't tell your doctor your medical history, they wouldn't be able to diagnose you with that autoimmune disease because you wouldn't be presenting with enough symptoms for them to actually go, oh, you know, you probably got this. Because that's the idea is, although you may have a diagnosis in your medical file, if you can uh, resolve the perturbations to human physiology that autoimmunity brings and the symptoms go away, that means the disease processes are going away. Sure, you have the gene for it and the gene has been turned on. It's also been turned down. Hmm. Right. And, so and then you wouldn't be diagnosed. So when you say that, um, are you saying that uh, the way we think about having, quote, having something or not having something is uh, is different in the way you see it? it because you either uh, you present with something or then it sort of disappears, which means you don't have it anymore. I mean, well, like this is this is a bit semantic, right? So if, you know, some people in lab coats have said once you have an autoimmune disease, say like MS or Parkinson's or colitis, and it's been treated, you mm -hmm. know, in the sense of now you're on some kind of scary pharmaceutical, as far as medical sort of straight white coat medicine is concerned, you'll be managing that condition for your life. And in a way that's true. Uh, it's just that their perspective of managing the condition would be drugs and surgery. Sure. So if you're not requiring drugs and surgery, as far as they're concerned, your condition is just dormant or um, downregulated enough that for now you're going to be okay. And it doesn't make them bad people. It just makes them the people who walk around with a scalpel and a prescription bottle. You know, what's the old saying? You know, you talk to a hammer, everything's a nail. You talk to a person who's a pharmaceutical person, they're going to say drug or knife. Right. <laughs> Right. I just punched the microphone here. Um, but again, I've watched this for over 20 years where people can get so, um, get their autoimmune response down so low that there would be no way to diagnose the condition unless they were actually looking at your genetics in some way. Hmm. Well, and, and um, I don't know if this is part of the conversation or not, but it, it just makes me think of how... Um, I've subscribed to the idea that I have a certain thing. I quote again, have something, uh, and that's something that defines me. You know, that's something that sort of uh, rules my, um, not necessarily how my physiology works, but how my psychology works. Like what I think about myself because I have a particular uh, condition. Like my gallbladder uh, likes to hate me, or it used to, and it doesn't mm. do that anymore. Um, and I'm still. Uh, issue free after I'd say two or three years, uh, I have mild gallbladder attacks. I don't have really debilitating ones, but when I was a kid, I used to tiptoe around everything that potentially would have aggravated that and um, made me a bit of an ass. You know, I was like angry at the world right. because of that. So what was going on for me physically was affecting, affecting me sort of emotionally and, and, and outwardly and that sort of thing. So, um, and that's a podcast in itself. <laughs> okay. Okay. So w w w when you talk about protocols and that sort of thing, if somebody's uh, dealing with an autoimmune protocol, um, is there any kind of uh, part of that that deals with the sort of uh, emotional aspect? Or is that sort of a, a topic that we're going to go into in another day? Uh, no, that'd be a great place to get into it because that's what we're doing this for is to help people on a mind uh, mindset, lifestyle kind of sense 
hopefully during these conversations, imagine themselves putting whatever it is we're talking about into practice in their lives. Mm -hmm. So um, we're speaking to people. We're not speaking to gallbladders, although hopefully gallbladders will, you know. Do you want to talk to mine? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) He's a bit of a jerk, but. (laughs) Yes. Well, I can be a jerk. We could probably throw it out. (laughs) Get along. So absolutely. um, And we talked about this about three or four podcasts ago. It was called uh, Heal Your Gut, Heal Your Life. Because it's not only about fixing your microbiome and getting your neurotransmitters back in balance, although that's going to have a huge amount of effect on your state. Uh, A thing that I'm hugely uh, aware of in my life, like daily, um, and I'm aware of speaking to people almost daily, is what I would call the rite of passage effect. So we all know that there, you know, in some cultures we have these rites of passage where you go and prove that you're a grown up or you're not a jerk or you can take care of your kids or something. And when you have to take care of yourself for weeks and months in a row around, you know, pretty much everything we're going to talk about for the next hour, um, you become the person who keeps making those positive self-affirming health affirming disease sort of avoiding decisions. And, um, there's this thing called neuroplasticity and all this other stuff. So when a person goes through weeks and weeks in a row and then months and months in a row of being self-loving, self-caring, being patient, being kind, learning to negotiate with the people in their sphere of influence, their family around what Friday nights look like or about what they will or won't, um, you know, risk doing to themselves. And it can take people a couple of years, you know, sometimes to really, really, uh, wrap your mind around all the details and get the result you're eventually going to get from this. For me, that's the magic. Hmm. Honestly, watching people get those aha moments about, I don't have to just scratch every itch. I I am not a compensatory stress addict. And we all are until we're not. When you talk about uh, the shift into a more self-loving kind of space, um, that just totally resonates with me. Because what what, what, what other... I can't think of a more potent medicine than a person turning that particular dial around in their mind and their heart. Well, yeah. Like for me to uh, shift my, um, and again, I don't want to make this all about me, but it's a good example. I, 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 for me to actually have this shift in perspective on uh, what it is that's actually working or not working inside my gut um, to all of a sudden be kind of like uh, curious. It's like, oh, wow, hey, that's kind of cool. Oh, it's broken. Neat. As opposed to, you know, insert a whole bunch of four-letter words and I'm pissed off that it's broken. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the the anger, I think, is what actually held me to a place of being uh, perpetually sick. Um, and I don't know that I'm any less sick than, uh, than I was before. I'm sure my gallbladder would still react if I had all those foods and things that trigger it. Wheat's a really good one. Coffee, unfortunately, is a good one. Um or weedy things anyways, bready mm-hmm. things, cakes, cookies, all that kind of crap. Stop saying the bad words, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, see, what this is that when I talk about that kind of stuff, that's the dialogue that exists in my head, right? Yeah. I don't have a mature kind of um, uh, language around that sort of thing because I it existed so long with me with my fists up, you know, mm-hmm. playing, you know, uh, fisticuffs with, uh, with my own personality, my own self around being sick. And now it's kind of like, oh, hey, that doesn't work. I wonder what I can do with this. Oh, I just know that if I get a decent night's sleep and uh, a hot water bottle, that gallbladder is going to, you know, be right as rain in the morning. You know, my own little unofficial protocol. Um, 
anyways, I, I, I'm just sort of going on to um, um, punctuate the, the idea that you have around um, emotional shifts uh, being a very helpful thing around um, any kind of disease. It's, it's the gold plate at the end of the race. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and so um, you mentioned that you actually have something of an autoimmune protocol and there's a list. I mean, we've been sort of talking about the, uh, maybe what the list looks like or how it feels, but do you actually want to get into some sort of... Uh... Well, there, there's a definitely a do's and don'ts, and I think that's inevitably where we're going to go. But I think first it might be a good idea for the listeners who may or may not, you know, be hip deep in what autoimmune disease is about is just to kind of help frame that whole thing. Because again, one in six people has an autoimmune disease. Right now in hospitals, one in three people who die each day is dying due to the complications of autoimmunity. Wow. So yeah, epidemic. And the only thing that the pharmaceutical people can do with respect to, to those uh, amazing people uh, is surgery and drugs. And the drugs for autoimmunity are immune suppression. Hmm. So now you're on medications that are profoundly of like life or death kind of medicines, really. Right. Um, some of them are ridiculously experimental in the sense of taking the genes out of mice. I don't know who got that idea going <laughs> and splicing it with these other things uh, to try and create biologic drugs, which for whatever reason we're still trying to figure out, affect unique parts of the trigger cycle of the immune system to reduce those triggers. But as I'm sure we can all imagine, we really don't know what we're doing around this stuff the way I think most of us would really prefer that we did, hmm. especially as patients. Because if I'm taking something like Humira, which is a pretty significant biologic you know, drug, um, it's maybe not necessary if we could solve the autoimmune thing another way in the sense of putting out a fire. Uh, but downstream 10 years from now, what those drugs are going to be doing to human livers, kidneys, brains, whether or not they're going to have a huge impact, hint, hint, oh my God, eek, on things like the proliferation of cancer and things we haven't even thought of yet, we just don't know. And I'm not saying let's be paranoid conspiracy theorists and assume that everything that the white coats are doing is evil, because that's not my opinion at all. Um... But it is, I think, a really important thing for patients who are in in that canoe right now about which scary drug is going to, you know, control my health and what other options do I have. And again, pharmaceutical knife drug, those people don't really uh, have the training and the confidence in that training to talk to you about what an autoimmune diet would look like or what other protocols are necessary or what immune modulation looks like or whether or not medical cannabis is allowed now or just all these other things that are so much profoundly safer, I think smarter in the long term. But, um, and this is going to probably piss some people off a little bit. Uh, when you look at the bigger picture of taking care of autoimmunity naturally, it flies in the face, and I'm sorry, but I'm not, in the of the entitled impatient West. Hmm. I mean, we have the medical system we have because we kind of asked for it. We want a solution and we want it now. So this is a trip. So I go back to my training with this crazy Taoist wizard who turned out to be like the master Chinese doctor, 15 generation family, father to son, blah, blah, blah. Um, one of the first things he did when we were studying just lifestyle uh, health principles is he actually went, um, or he had somebody go and get a bottle of liquor, some glasses and a bag of ice. And he basically, well, it was, 
know it was one of his students who did this part, but um, they basically said, okay, this is this is the essential principle of where Western health went wrong. And they poured some alcohol into a glass, put some ice in it, and he shook it. Click, little sip, put it down, and smiled that big, unforgettable, wise, but sometimes playful and <laughs> terrifying smile of like, get it? And it took us all quite a while to really finally get it. Right. Part of it was refrigeration, right? I'm not saying refrigeration is bad, but it fundamentally changed the way that we deal with food and what we eat and how we shop because now everything, you know, it's about preservation. Mm -hmm. But his real point was when you come home from work and you're entitled to, in an impatient way, a cocktail and whatever it is that refrigeration is doing to human lifestyle and diets and, and potential in, in whatever way, and you damn well want it. And if you don't get it because you don't have a fridge or you don't have the money for a nice glass and some nice liquor, <laughs> then you're losing at this, right? And it isn't that we all have to go home and drink. It's that we all have to, we all are compelled by that part of our culture to find a quick fix, easy way uh, that we feel entitled to that is sort of like the soothing thing that helps us with our impatience and our compulsions and our need to calm down. You know, there's lots of ways to do it. And I'm just trying to make a, a really specific kind of point. If it seems like I'm just blathering on here. Um, the present system we have in medicine is based on, come on, doc, what do you got? I got to get back to work. Hmm. And over the, the decades from the 50s, when that kind of shift in culture happened, uh, when you start looking at medical research, the second paragraph in almost every research article is the number of man hours lost to industry because of said condition. That's the sort of uh, set point that they, that they ref ref reference things from. I'm just saying it's interesting to me as a healer and or clinician and or person who's trying to help people, whatever way you want to look at it, but throw the healer thing for context. What the hell are we talking about man hours lost to industry when we're talking about trying to help sick people? Right. So we, we have this paradigm that really is about the entitlement of industry and impatience and economy to make the decisions about everything else that actually really matters. And it's no one's fault. You know, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying, yeah, we kind of unconsciously kind of in a hurry, impatient way, kind of developed this system where instead of going to a sanatorium in the mountains for two months to solve your TB, you're just given heavier drugs that may or may not kill you later. Hmm. And, um, so just based on that statistic kind of thing that you see, uh, you're saying that that, that, that hasn't always been there. Well, I mean, autoimmunity wasn't like this. I mean, even if you look at celiac disease, it was what one in 2000 people 30 years ago. Now it's one in, what is it? 120 something. Wow. Right. And that's, that's full blown celiac. And how many people never find out that they actually have that? Cause there are so many subclinical sort of statuses with reactions to food proteins. Right. So I'm just throwing that out there that before we get into the kind of mechanics of an autoimmune process, I just want to bring everyone into the kind of mix that we're actually in as patients and clinicians and as a society with, you know, some, some of our healthcare being covered with insurance and not. So there's this whole melange of, of players that have basically left the people who are the canaries in the mine shaft of the 21st century, like me, <laughs> tweet, tweet, um, <laughs> at the back of a very, very terrifying line that it, it only moves in one direction, knife, drug, or, you know, go on disability, hmm. you know, not necessarily in that order. Right. So 
autoimmunity is just a glitch. Do you think that, um, what's, what's the, the phrase industrial disease? Do you think that we're sicker because of how it is that we actually choose to live and work? That that's in my opinion, the reason why it happens. Hmm. And if, um, let's say for example, we lived in a culture that uh, was a little less, um, North American. And then the statistics suddenly go to like one in, you know, 400 people or one in a hundred people instead of one in six people. Because mm. it's a combination of, of what are called threshold potentials. So let's say, you know, we have a, a little basket on a string and the string could probably sustain 150 pounds for some reason. And you and I being the playful little imps that we are, keep putting stuff 150, 151 pounds, 152 pounds. And at some point, snap that string's going to break. Now, uh, I apologize if this isn't a very easy uh, metaphor, but let's say that that string, when it breaks, has a bungee cord attached to the two parts of the string that separate. Okay. So now it's hanging on an elastic-y thing. And the more we keep adding on that, because he-he-he, we're playful little imps that we are, uh, in the sense that I, I'm committed to seeing how bad this is going to get. And let's say we keep putting things on there and the bungee cord starts to stretch out. And as it starts to stretch out and experience more load, it starts to change color from, say, yellow alert towards red alert. So the idea is the more things that we keep adding to the physiology of the body with respect to food, stimulants, toxic things, alcohol, cigarettes, uh, you know, recreational drugs that may or may not be in any way in the long term a good idea, um, uh, undiagnosed food reactions that we'll get into in a bit that are driving everybody nuts in medicine um, and stress is the biggest part of this all. 80% of everything that makes your immune system more of a twit is stress. And we could, if we had a chalkboard or something, I could get into the exact details because it's a lot of terminology and trickiness, but absolutely. So, you know, you have the threshold uh, potential of stress, you mm -hmm. know, how's your day? Is it a six out of 10 day, which would be bad. An eight out of 10 would have been worse. Now, how many days in a row can you maintain that for? Before the string breaks. Before your string breaks or the bungee cord starts screaming in red. Right. And then there's how many days in a row, and this for you, I mean, specifically, uh, would be how many days in a row could you have cheesecake? Me? Yeah, because cheesecake is the ultimate dashboard light test for people with your kind of gallbladder issues. So I'm not suggesting you ever eat cheesecake again, Anthony. I'm just saying that on average for most people, if you do something three days in a row, on day four, your immune system is now completely red alert. Yeah because of the autoimmune threshold and potential. Yeah, I live I live a life right now with uh, dash lights coming on occasionally, mm -hmm. as opposed to the uh, DEFCON 4 uh, <laughs> lights coming on, uh, yeah. which is, as I said before, a totally different way of living. Yeah, so um, not, not to carry this too far afield, but I'm just reminded um, from the experience I had a couple of months ago with uh, Iboga, that in that tradition, and I just love how the synergy of this stuff plays out in the world. In that tradition, if you have a negative frame of mind that you are, you know, maybe semi-consciously producing and semi-consciously consuming, you know, in the sense of you just run into some, you know, I'm making this international sign for crazy with my finger again. Uh, you know, you, you just start, because it usually starts half-conscious. You know, you wake up in the morning and you're like, you know, I'm still sad about that breakup or I'm still, you know, missing that person in my life or maybe I did screw this thing up and now I'm going to have to deal with the consequences. And that's an unconscious beginning. Hmm. And then you're brushing your teeth and you're running through the whole 
you know, play by play in your head again. Now that's, that's number two. And then if I do that same cycle of thinking for three times in a row, it's very likely that I'm going to just stick with it for probably six more times. You know, it could be days, it could be hours, it could be minutes. And it isn't really specific to that. It's just that it's funny how it seems to me that there's like a little bit of a universal law. You can do anything dumb three times in a row. And if you kind of step away quickly and go, ha ha, sorry, just kidding, you'll probably be okay. But if you do anything, especially that you know is self-harming uh, or not going to in any way improve your existence internally or externally, and you keep doing it, you're, there's a part of you that's like driving by the car crash and you're looking for the head underneath the car beside you just because you're compelled to look, even though when you look at the head under the car there or not, you're probably going to drive into the guy flagging traffic because <laughs> you don't care because your mind just wants to see how bad it's going to get. So that's just a part of human nature, right? But mm. if you start, you know, through, well, 25 years of, I can do anything naughty for three days in a row if I'm dumb enough to see if I can get away with that. And I mean dumb with humor. I'm not trying to be mean to me or anybody else, but that's the game. So when it comes to this whole part of the, the autoimmune process is you have to step back and look at the fact you can't participate in modern culture without some Cole's notes on how to get around the things that are going to mess you up like entitlement and impatience and buying into the model of stress that we consider normal and or the, the model of diet we consider normal. You're just a canary in the mine shaft and tweet, tweet. It's time to take care of that. And each of us, you know, especially at the beginning of these kind of protocols, we, I think we do need to learn the three-day rule because mm. everybody at the beginning of this is going to get impatient. And it's usually on like day four, then about day 26, 28, where people are just like, I need to do something fun. <clears throat> and if you're going to do that, just don't do it three days in a row. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, uh, I can speak from experience that, uh, those times when I'm like, uh, screw you buddy, I'm going to do this anyways. Yep. And, um, I don't, I don't get the three day, the three strikes you're out. It's like one strike you're out. <laughs> yeah, well, it gets you. And it was funny. I just popped into my head that on reserve, uh, First Nations or Native American reservations, at least where I've been, we have the reservation rule for alcohol, which is if you have alcohol three days in a row, you better stop because you probably won't be able to stop if you have day four. And that's true with people who have a very genetic uh, specific allergy to alcohol. Hmm. If you have alcohol four days in a row, it's going to hurt to stop now. And I'm not suggesting, you know, that that's any more of a thing than, than it is. It's just another example that for whatever reason, human physiology has these little kind of uh, patterns. Right. Uh, so let's say you're a person who um, is getting peripheral symptoms. You're getting, you know, eczema, asthma, all kinds of other stuff. And um, you keep doing the things that are going to trigger it. And eventually it becomes a full-blown, you know, disease and doctors are diagnosing and stuff like that. What's important to recognize is that your immune system kind of has those thresholds and it looks kind of like an action movie. Yeah. How's that? So something happens in, in the body the same way something happens like a car accident. Okay. Right. There's a, there's a, a bad connection between two things. Like you can have two cars drive peacefully next to each other, or you could have two cars crash into each other. You could have two mole molecules peacefully float through the human body, or you could have them boom, turn into you know, a train wreck. Fukushima of the immune system. <laughs> yeah, if that's an, a, a, okay to say. So at a certain point, you know, there's an accident in your village, in your body, right? And that's just, you know, an example for immune chaos. The ambulance shows up. Oh, 
some CPR, a little bit of a pat on the head and off you go and you know, everything's fine. Maybe the accident's a little bit worse. So now the firemen are there, that's, you know, inflammation and uh, swelling and all that kind of stuff. And the ambulance guy's there now more there to pick up dead bodies than they are to, you know, take care of people or a bit of both. And then, you know, the, say there's this little village and the accidents keep happening, you know, three days, four days, five days in a row. And now the mayor of the village is going, you know what, I think we're in some trouble here. Let's send not only the ambulance and the firemen, <clears throat> let's send the police. And if this keeps going on for weeks and weeks and weeks, let's send in the militia. Okay, and now we're going to send in full-blown martial law. And autoimmunity actually looks exactly like the way martial law looks in a country or a city. Hmm. Because now the guys who are supposed to be taking care of the, the civilians, uh, instead they've got big shields and guns and, you know, batons and they're pushing the people, <laughs> you know, around with clubs or worse. And when that process gets going, as goofy as a, a bit of imagery as it is, um, it is the, honestly the easiest way for people to think this through though, because sure. <laughs> we watch TV. Uh, the tricky part is when your body <clears throat> or your village mayor uh, decides to hire some bounty hunters. Bounty hunters? So we're just going to go with the action movie imagery, yeah. right? So I'm, I'm, I'm there with you. I'm just like, <laughs> okay, martial law, whatever. So some smart person has said, you know what? There's got to be somebody behind all this. And we think we know who it is. We think it's gluten. We mm -hmm. think it's, you know, eggs. We think it's dairy. So your body produces this army of bounty hunters, which are little cells. We call them uh, B cells or memory B cells. And no, B isn't for bounty hunter. B means made in your bones, but I like the B because it works for bounty hunter too. Um, <clears throat> once those B cells get activated, they run around with a very specific kind of antigen tag that is very much exactly the same as a wanted poster. And they have a little gun. And if they see anything, and let's assume bounty hunters, you know, they're kind of like you with the five o'clock shadow and the kind of yeah, yeah. badass look, you know, and they're running around everywhere in the back alleys of the immune system. They might have more hair. Maybe. <laughs> Just tattoos instead. <laughs> so anytime they see anything that looks anything at all like the wanted poster, they take their magic gun and they point it through the antigen tag or the, the wanted poster, pull the trigger, and they produce a hundred thousand of themselves within the space of about four to ten seconds. So they multiply themselves in, in effect to take care of the bad guy. Well, I mean, if we're going to get him, get him and shoot him and shoot him a lot. Right. And shoot him anywhere and shoot his friend. And we're kind of drunk, so we can't really tell. Shoot that guy too. Huh. Right. And this is just the, I think it's the easiest analogy for people to kind of get a sense of because your immune system is either a friendly, happy village or it's a city in martial law burning itself to the ground and or it's got a bunch of guys running around like bounty hunters shooting at people or tissue in your body or tissue in your diet that looks anything like a problem. Mm. And I mean, it's confusing for everybody. It makes diagnosis and then the classical sense of the term kind of goofy even to think about because everything's just a giant mess. Yeah. It sounds like it. it sounds like there's a lot of, a lot of cleaning up to do. Yeah. When you look at this from the kind of clinical point of view, and I'll throw this out for people because uh, obviously we're making this podcast to help people. These are questions that I ask everybody that comes into my office, uh, not necessarily in this order. Uh, do you know how stressful your pregnancy was when you were a baby? Mm -hmm. right? Or your mother's pregnancy was? Uh, are you aware when you were born if you were breastfed? Are you aware that it was a vaginal birth or a C-section? How often and when were you vaccinated? 
right? Have you ever had any severely high, high fevers? Did your parents always uh, turn your fevers down with Advil and Tylenol? Um, did you ever uh, have what's called otitis media, which is these chronic earaches a lot of kids get, and it's the initial autoimmune disease in most people? Uh, were you born with eczema or asthma? Did you develop uh, eczema or asthma or any of these other conditions during adolescence? Did you become depressed, anxious, or develop insomnia during puberty? And on and on and on. Because there's all these little flags that tell us, oh, you're more and more looking like a canary. Mm-hmm. Right? And at a certain point, I mean, I mean, in no way would I say I feel bored, but at a certain point I'm like, wow, this is really predictable. I mean, there, there should have been a class in grade 10. You know, are you feeling weirdly sad, weirdly anxious and not sleeping? And have you suddenly got weird rashes, having a hard time playing sports? Are you having, you know, especially Halloween's coming up, you know, in the sense of the time we're recording this right now. Um, every kid who's prone to this kind of problem, the week after Halloween mm. is like, I should, I just, just start a pediatric clinic, you know, okay, it's, you know, second week of November, line it up for the kids because, you know, and this is about how the immune system works. If you eat, eat a lot of sugar, you're messing with your insulin, but you're also feeding a lot of bugs. Right. And any kind of virus or bug uh, infection, it takes four days for your immune system to really figure out how to like fight back. So the symptoms are always like day four, day five, day six, when a person's like, uh-oh, I'm, something's wrong. Better go to the doctor. Billy's got asthma. Sounds like you're going to be a busy guy next week. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Got to find my box of teddy bears to keep the kids distracted. <laughs> yeah, well. So just to say that the autoimmunity, it's a hugely complex thing uh, for people who are listening to this, who know somebody or maybe within themselves who have that kind of medical history. Don't mess around. Get into this as fast as you can because anything else is madness. Hmm. Well, it, um, when you say madness, it, 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 I know from experience. Uh, how uh, crazy making it is. Me too. <laughs> yeah. You, you, would know, you probably know better than I do just because um, you work with it and you've actually had to personally work with it too, right? Well, so have you. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we need to be bringing about the, the measuring tape of who's got the bigger disease or whatever <laughs> else the bigger thing needs to be. But I think it's, for me, what this is really about uh, at this point, 25 years as a patient, 21, two years as a clinician, it's about patience. It's about not having to know the answer. Mm -hmm. It's about kind of just finding the humility to engage in the fact that, well, 85% of people who have these diagnosable conditions within weeks to months to sometimes a year or two, depending on how old they are and severe their condition is, reduce their symptoms or return their village to such a great place that they wouldn't be diagnosed. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen 75-year-old little old ladies, you know, crippling arthritis a few months go by, and they're the one teaching the Qigong class at the senior center. Hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. It's, uh, it's, it's encouraging to uh, hear you talk about this being something, for lack of a better word, simple in some way, because I know from my own experience in, in working with you, um, the, uh, the idea of patience um, happened over the course of a year and uh, you know we did acupuncture and I remember you saying something the reason why you do acupuncture is so that you actually force people to sit still <laughs> stick them full of a bunch of needles so they can't actually move for like 20 minutes to half an hour to an hour yeah well there's lots of reasons I say people need acupuncture <laughs> it just depends on who I'm talking to and, and why you know I, I'm not really <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really sure if you were joking about that but part of me just went 
God, that just makes so much sense to actually sit and just be kind of like, hmm, for, you know, so many minutes where you can't do anything. You know, I'm sure if you could have stuck a needle from one ear <laughs> through to the other <laughs> to actually shut off the activity on the inside, that probably would have helped too. But I think that, I don't think they have a, that treatment isn't a partial treatment. I think that's like, okay, on, off. <laughs> that's the permanent, permanent treatment. Oh, you're cured. Well, there is actually a reason why though. Uh, on that level, although it is the affirmation of some stillness and having the patience to just be with yourself. But when you do lie horizontally with massage, with a nap, with, with acupuncture, other things, if you're lying horizontally for more than 20 minutes in a restful way, you're going to go into what's called a hypnagogic state. Right. And all of the blood in your muscles is going to pool back into the visceral space instead of in your fight or flight, you know, run around busy day muscles. So you get this huge deep nap-like reset which is true of any kind of therapy that just makes you lie still and wait and see what happens. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I can attest to, uh, totally, uh, zoning out and kind of almost falling asleep, but not really. Yeah. That's, that's, that's hypnagogic. You're asleep, you're awake, you're not sure. Yeah. And the I, number of people who've asked me, can I put my phone underneath the massage table to like watch a podcast or listen to something while I'm getting acupuncture? No, no. <laughs> uh, can't say the word way. <laughs> <laughs> Starts with an F. Yeah, yeah. No F and way. No F and way. Yeah. No, uh, it's um, it's it's exciting to to think about that whole process and and how you're um, sort of relaying that back again. If if anything, hearing, um, going over the sort of uh, the idea around the protocol, um, I don't know, kind of makes me feel healthier in some way. Yeah, so I just triggered the toggle the screen over so that if we're going to get into the do's and don'ts, I can do this in a way that's really, really easy for people to follow who are seeing the, the video part of this recording. Sure. If you are just listening through audio, um, it's not going to change it at all. It just keeps, uh, you may just want to take some notes. Yeah. So if we get, in, get into the do's and don'ts, we're all cool with that. First thing you want to be aware of is that um, there's a whole class of foods we call plant embryos that by themselves are known to be the most consistent uh, immune or autoimmune triggers, mostly because they're ubiquitous in the diet. I mean, they're a part of almost every meal if you don't know not that, that they're bad for you. Okay. Uh, people out there in podcast uh, land are saying to themselves, plant what? So the reason I say plant embryos is because uh, I've learned to come at this in a way that's meant to help people remember this. Hmm. So if you're watching this as a video, close your eyes for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> you just turned it on. I pay good money for this. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to ask you to just like um, trust that this is the easiest way for people to remember this. So there's this uh, First Nations saying... And, um, before I say that thing, I just need to preface it in two ways because people can take this stuff in pretty interesting directions. So in first nations culture, we have no word for belief or spirituality or religion. Just for whatever reason, we have the assumption that this whole thing is sacred and there's nothing that isn't. So why would you need a special day to be sacred? So it just never developed into the language. But when I say what I'm going to say, it may sound like a belief. So if we don't have any word for that, that's not what we're trying to do here. <laughs> okay. uh, the other thing that's tricky about uh, First Nations or Native American culture is it's considered very rude to tell people something in the sense that you need to tie up your shoes and clean your room and be a better person, stop hurting your sister or whatever, because in that culture, we find the, the sacredness of a person's autonomy much more important than controlling uh, immediate behavior. 
because if a person can eventually grow up as their, their complete whole self, then that's who you're dealing with from the day they become themselves in, in their adult full sort of self-aware conscious self. So it's a really, I don't know, it's kind of like in investment strategies. Okay, if I can control Billy for five seconds, I'll feel better for five seconds. But if I can let Billy grow into Billy and become Billy the man who's completely self-aware for the next 50 years, we all get a really good version of Billy, right? So this is the strategy in, you know, those kind of cultures. And it's an ethic in Taoism. It's an ethic in Buddhism, non-interference. You just try to let people come into the world as themselves. So I know that's a huge preface for this, but when I say this saying, I'm not trying to tell you anything. And it's not a belief. So drum roll, please. <laughs> Here's the saying. <clears throat> Plants created animals to get their seeds around. Said another way, and I'm only saying this to put a funny picture in your head. Plants created animals to get their babies around. Hmm. I'm picturing birds eating seeds flying across the field. And the plant's going, go, go, go. Yeah, just a little bit farther. Yeah. And the bird gets there and... Yeah, or bears or humans. We poop out the babies and the babies grow up in some free manure and everybody gets, you know, along. And if we chew them up really well, we get some extra, you know, food value. So the reason why this is set up the way it is, is that say, I mean, the most common response people have when I ask them in my clinic, you know, does that put a funny picture in your head? And they go, well, you know, I'm just thinking about how much I uh, poop out corn. And I'm like, well, yeah, no one can digest corn. Hmm. So imagine that it's, I don't know, 10,000 years ago and I'm talking to my grandma and it's, you know, back in the day from the, you know, native side of things. And we're eating some meal and um, she's going through all of this work, you know, to make this, this food, you know, in her mind more safe for everybody. And they're like, why are we doing all that stuff, Grandma? And she says, well, you know, plants created animals to get their babies around. Mm. And the kid sits there and thinks for five minutes and goes, yeah, we poop out a whole bunch of stuff that looks the same, but why is it we poop out all the stuff that looks like poop? Like, what's the difference between stuff that always turns into the stuff that we know it's supposed to look like and the stuff that looks like it did when it went in? Because, mm -hmm. you know, 10,000 years ago, nobody had an idea in the sense of chemistry. We just knew the people who kept eating those things got really sick. Right. So there's all these traditional ways to produce things like corn. I mean, indigenous people figured out how to make corn digestible by soaking it in lye. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, without chemistry, they just kept experimenting with stuff and said, hey, whoa, now we can digest this stuff. Crazy. Right. So when you're looking at all these other food sources from a modern scientific point of view, who isn't curious how it is that sunflower seeds and quinoa and, you know, corn and everything else, especially in people with compromised digestive health, like, how can those foods chemically resist hydrochloric acid and pancreatic enzymes and the ver vicious war that's going on in your microbiome to tear everything down to its molecular constituent parts? Like, these have to be some superpower foods to defend all of that chemistry. Corn's pretty tough. Well, I'm talking about every one of these plant embryos, all yeah. seeds, all nuts, all grains, and all beans. They all have the chemistry to survive the digestion of mammals, to grow up in our poop. Thanks for the ride. Mm -hmm. So that's why I bring up this whole thing with, with that, because here's the chemistry of how they do it. Um, there's these, it's not really in, in any specific order, but there's a thing in plant embryos called lectins, right? And they basically uh, take your brush border enzymes and your microvilli, and um, because of the way lectins behave chemically, they make things stick together. Okay. So at the front line of your digestive system, that just reduces surface area. 
But when a lectin gets into your bloodstream, it can make your immune system cells and your blood cells and a bunch of other things stick together. And uh, obviously when things stick together, they're harder for your body to deal with. It's like the opposite of what digestion is meant to do. Mm -hmm. Because digestion is to tear things apart, not stick them together. Right. So when you're looking at that, that's a problem. Then there's what are called phytates. Um, Phytates are a kind of um, chemical compound that um, can basically bind to minerals as an acid and they, they could bind to calcium to make them the acid less acidic as an example chemically and now you're having a mineral deficiency uh to some degree depending on how uh, healthy your gi tract is and how many minerals you just happen to have lying around to deal with that and then there's these things called prolamine prolamins or prolamines depending on how you pronounce it and uh, i've got this up on the screen just because uh, the numbers are interesting so a prolamine is basically like a little chemical little, uh, hand grenade it's got a protein component and then another kind of uh, sticky, kind of what's called an agglutinin uh, component. And uh, wheat would be basically gliadin mixed with, uh, which is a protein, with what's called wheat agglutinin. So that, that little protein combination is what allows uh, things like bread to swell up with a CO2 bubble to make the bubble in bread to make bread chewable instead of a brick. Mm-hmm. But it's the stretchy nature of those proteins that allow the bubble to be like a balloon because balloons don't work if they don't stretch. However, when you look at the chemistry of how those proteins change under the excitement of that kind of pressure and temperature, when they do digest down, they literally explode in like a a hand grenade. Uh, They produce a molecule called zonulin, which breaks down your gut membrane, producing the conditions uh, for what's called a leaky gut or porous bowel membrane. And now the gliadin from wheat can fall through your gut membrane, getting into your bloodstream, uh, now making uh, your immune system more likely to attack that protein because it's still a whole protein. So it's still a whole protein. It hasn't been digested down into its amino acid components. Hmm. And your immune system looks at a whole protein in your blood as a virus. Right. Because the only reason a whole protein is in your blood in the history of our evolutionary past is it's a virus. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So here we have this thing. And again, it's about threshold and potential, because if you only had a piece of wheat once a week and it was whole wheat, sourdough made by your grandma, ground up by, I don't know, donkeys or something in your backyard, <laughs> just for the idea of homesteading kind of imagery. You are so not a baker. No, not really. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> anyway, so once in a while, that wouldn't be a big deal. But when you're having something all day, every day, uh, it's going to hurt you. And this is the big thing in the, the for the, I don't know, I'm not trying to be a jerk here, but for the hippie crowd to try and figure out what to do about the fact Asian people eat white rice instead of brown rice. Because if you're, a, you know, an educated Westerner who happens to think, you know, eating rice is a better idea than eating Bambi or, you know, Bessie the cow or something like that, which is your right. Uh, a lot of new age people make the mistake of assuming brown rice is better for you than white rice because there's more nutrients in it. And on that level, of course, that's true. But if you look at Asia, they they eat rice breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. Well, at least breakfast and dinner. And um, if you had brown rice breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, all day, and as we look into the all the different ways uh, plant embryos can cause you harm, eventually the threshold is going to not only break the string and yank out the bungee cord, it's going to probably break the bungee cord too, which is why Asian people eat white rice, because although they didn't know what prolamins were or prolamines were, they just realized that the people who ate white rice, 
seem to live longer and be happier than the people who eat all these, you know, more hearty grains all day, every day at every meal. So here we are in the West eating probably a wheat product at every sitting in, in some way or another, um, if not a dairy product or both. And now we're just poking the immune system in the face every time we sit down with the same threshold potential as a danger for, for health. So very quickly, when if you can see the video for this um, and you're looking at this chart, 69% of the protein constituents of a wheat uh, product is uh, going to be full of that prolamine, right? Whereas rice is 5%. I've, mm -hmm. even, I've even seen it said as low as 3 Hmm. Oats around 16%. I've seen it as low as 12 in the sense of where different research is at. So obviously that's a huge difference. Yeah. Um, huge. So when you're looking at one of the reasons why plant embryos are bad, that's the biggest one because you're swallowing grenades. And if you're doing it all day, every day with the same uh, chemical protein grenades, of course, at a certain point, things are going to break down. Hmm. So another thing that uh, plant embryos have, and if, I think it's obvious if you're a plant embryo hanging off of the branch of your particular mama, you know, plant, and insects are trying to eat you, and everyone's trying to eat you because you are a great source of energy for everybody else, which is, mom, <laughs> <laughs> you're dangling me out here in the wind <laughs> in my diapers, oh my god. So uh, plant embryos have these enzyme inhibitors that stop the sort of salivary enzymes of, of insects from being able to break down the surface because, you know, an, in, an insect is going to hop onto a little plant embryo and start spitting and chewing and spitting and chewing the way insects digest their food. And if it's not going to get its teeth into it in any meaningful way very quickly, it's going to move on to another food supply. Mm -hmm. But we use the same enzymes to digest the little plant embryos too. So once we've eaten them through our mouth, if we didn't chew them up into a paste, it's up to our enzymes to try and tear through that burrito you choke back in 10 seconds and all those beans are sitting there going, oh yeah, I'm supposed to stop you from doing that. Hmm. It's just chemistry. But I mean, that's crazy that there's that many ways they stop you from doing that job. And finally, and this is especially true of wheat, um, there's a thing called exomorphines, which are things that are like morphine that we get from plants like wheat wow and it's as addictive as morphine and the number of people who go off wheat and within four days are losing their particular poop because they're so compelled to eat something that makes them feel well drugged that's why hmm. i know it's it's nuts and that's uh that's just like one little thing on your little graphic I'm looking uh, at the screen yeah, there. We, we could be here for hours if I was to go through this in detail. I just wanted to spend time on that one because that's the hardest one for people to get. Mm -hmm. Plants, plant embryos, seeds, nuts, grains, and beans are always the first to go. After that, there's dairy. So sorry, hang on. When you say the first to go, um, it is still possible to include them in your diet if you're actually aware of what it is to do to, to mitigate the grenade launching kind of things. Yes, no? So if we're looking at this as the ancestral AIP or the ancestral autoimmune pro protocol, it's only for people who have an autoimmune disease and the answer is no, you cannot have any of these things ever again. Well, at least not for about 120 days. Got it. Okay. Just in case that didn't come up. So I'm not going to get into all the details with dairy, but I'm just going to say that uh, dairy contains a lot of different proteins. If those proteins get into your blood, you're going to attack them the same way you would attack a virus. There's a protein called casein that looks a lot like gliadin to your immune system. It's called molecular mimicry. Your immune system sometimes can't tell which of the two is the problem. So it just starts attacking both and anything in you that looks like both, including your thyroid gland. Wow. Which is why thyroid disease is epidemic right now. 
Then there's eggs. Eggs is super complicated. We could probably do an entire podcast on the biochemistry of how eggs are the most amazing food in the world, unless you have an autoimmune disease. And then they may be the thing that's actually taking you out in the most uh, tricky way. I mean, literally, the chemistry of this is just super tricky. But the long and short of it is that chemistry rapidly increases the rate at which your GI tract can break down, especially if you're using store-bought eggs that have been washed. So getting a friend who's got some chickens in the backyard and they're not washed, they're going to be less likely to be a problem. So I don't need to be too concerned about when I buy eggs at the market and it's still got a little bit of... Uh, you should be paying extra for those eggs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is, I think, hilarious when you think about the way society works. It's like, can I get the raw right out of the chicken vent, you know, non-treated, super healthy eggs? Uh, that's a 10 bucks an egg. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird to, just a quick aside here, uh, seeing eggs when they have the, like the little small uh, numbers printed on the side of them or something like that. I always think like, what machine did those fall out of? <laughs> Those are so gross looking. Gross. Yeah. Anyway, so... Eggs bad. Eggs bad, chemistry super complicated and fascinating. But the other tricky thing with eggs is they have a, a really dangerous kind of protein that can actually produce more immune system complexes, which is, again, things that stick together and make like a chemical bar fight that floats around your vascular tissue and your blood supply, causing inflammation, free radical stress, and telling the rest of your immune system you're an infected, sick animal and you better start swelling up real fast. Hmm. So yeah, eggs, not so great. Um, nightshades, uh, especially for people with arthritis, inflammatory, kind of red, swollen, itchy kind of things, really, really best to avoid. And that's so nightshades are? Potatoes, tomatoes, peppers, eggplant. And if you want to get really picky, you can get into all the, you know, cumin and spices. And if you're looking at supplements like ashwagandha, <coughs> excuse me, as a as a, an immune modulator, um, it's a nightshade. So you might be taking this really great, you know, Ayurvedic herb for your arthritis and think your clinician's an idiot because theoretically it's supposed to be helping you, but it's actually making you a lot worse. Hmm. And again, we have to just fly through this because we'd be here for hours. But Cause I, I really want to know who eats, who eats eggplants anyways. Apparently it's a thing. I find them really, the, there's a texture to them I'm just not really down with, but... <laughs> My mom knows how to cook them. Oh, I'll, nice. I'll, I'll say that much. Good. And then when you start looking at uh, commercially preserved meats, um, um, obviously like pepperoni and salami and prosciutto and this kind of thing, uh, just because of the modern chemical way it's uh, being done, it's just too much. Uh, it's too caustic. It's too irritating to the body. And then when you look at the difference between healthy organic grass-fed beef versus the amount of um, steroids, antibiotics, uh, ratio of fats in, in feedlot animals compared to healthy animals, it's, it's not even a, I mean, the word no-brainer comes to mind, but I'm trying to think of an even more irritating way of saying, don't be stupid. <laughs> You know, when it comes to that kind of stuff, and, and here we are living, you know, hundreds of millions of people on, on this part of the continent, and um, we're all dependent on a food supply that wasn't designed for human health. It was designed for, you know, profit for the owner of the, the people selling the food. Yeah, and uh, it, we could take this podcast in a whole bunch of different directions when you talk about um, how uh, painful um, modern factory farm processes are on the environment let alone our environment. Right? Yeah, and that's why I bring up farmed fish as, as sort of the next big decision for people because farmed fish are full of antibiotics and there's all kinds of problems in terms of genetic modification. <clears throat> I've never seen any research ever that had anything else to say other than 
I don't sorry I'm just thinking about Halloween and, and nightmare horrible crazy stuff I mean it's it, it's a Halloween thing if you're if you're eating a farm fish it's 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 nightmare fish mm. I already kind of mentioned preserved meats the last thing I, I want to just quickly get into is I have a bit of a I don't know what do you call it grudge a beef beef <laughs> nice <laughs> sorry that was a bit of a snort there but <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you've heard me talk about this before, but my, my beef, <laughs> oh no. Are you stuck now? A little bit. Well, you're the one who wants to bring video into this. Yeah, I'm yeah. looking at a picture of a barbecue. I, I know, I know. Anyway, so the glitch I have with the modern paleo diet is that if you look at all the paleo diet cookbooks, most of them it's like gastroporn for barbecue salesmen, mm-hmm. right? And if you look at paleolithic people, they didn't have metal grates to cook their food on so the idea that primitive paleo people would ever cook that way is theoretically um, impossible but again i grew up in the bush raised by indigenous people so i can say fairly confidently i think without sounding too arrogant that no self-respecting indigenous paleo person raised by their grandparents would ever cook meat over a fire on a stick Hmm. never mind on a grill Hmm. right so that's a pretty new fad and if we're talking about paleo diet you're not talking about grilled meat <clears throat> and in fact, um, if you ate meat cooked over a fire on a stick as your primary food source all day, every day, you'd be dead in three weeks. Wow. Because of what's called protein starvation. Because when you hold a piece of meat over a fire on a stick, all the fat drops into the fire, same as a barbecue. And when you barbecue food, you produce what are called advanced glycation end products, which is essentially the same thing as cancer and Alzheimer's disease. And it stands for age. Yeah, aging. Aging. Yeah. Um, so just on that real yep. quick, I'm sure um, the whole idea of around uh, food and the real paleo diet and what's good and what's bad and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about this in podcasts before. Yep. Uh, you've got a cookbook. Oh, yeah, I've got a cookbook. Um, so um, I'm, for all the people out there who are going, okay, I can't eat beans and bread, and now you tell me I can't do barbecue? I'm sure they just hung up the podcast, but if they're still listening... Well, it's probably because they know somebody or have an autoimmune disease and want to know what else they can do to not be sick. Yeah. So um, please say something about your book and the way that you think around cooking and stuff. Yeah. So I have a book. It's called Returning to an Ancestral Diet. It's like 600 pages. Uh, The first 100 pages is all about nutrition. And then after that, there's 500 gourmet recipes from around the world. Uh, It's basically arranged into three different diets. Uh, I would call an ice age diet and a paleo diet or a real paleo diet and um, a homesteader diet. Hmm. So uh, depending on where you're at with your health, you could either get away with, you know, the homesteader diet and still have rice and oats sometimes. Uh, Or you could go into that real paleo diet or dive into the ice age diet, which is primarily just an anti-inflammatory diet. I I just like to make fun of things because it's my humor. So when I heard about the paleo diet, I thought we need to have an ice age diet. So I made one up. It's just for fun. (laughs) But it is a very healthy thing to do to focus on anti-inflammatory foods for a while. Right. And uh, if people want to find your book. Oh, right. So if you want to find the book... (laughs) I'm, I'm going to hold you to this, uh, man, because that, that that book for me is a bit of a lifesaver in my kitchen. And that's what, you know, as much as this is our podcast and we mm-hmm. should be promoting ourselves in some way, maybe, right. um, having that book in there was kind of like, oh my God, what am I going to eat? Oh yeah, right. There's a book over there that's about four inches thick. Phew! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a bummer to ship that book because it weighs 1.2 kilograms. It's a y- big book. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you can find that book on my website integrativehealthsolutions.ca uh, there's an ebook it's less than 20 bucks so you can get all that information uh, if you don't mind using a tablet or your laptop in the kitchen just 
don't spill it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so another thing to be aware of uh, around uh, autoimmune disease is that it's primarily going to be driven by what we call your microbiome. So that's basically all the healthy bugs and you know, fun things that are going on in your GI tract. And that's a very, very sensitive environment to things like antibiotics or to alcohol or other things that kill bugs. So when you're looking at things that flavor your food, vinegar is a bad idea that's commercially made because it's, it's so acidic as a preservative that it can actually damage your microbiome where something that's a natural ferment like apple cider vinegar will not. Mm. And so the distinction there, it, you're not talking about the, uh, that plain old white vinegar, which you can use to clean your house with and windows and that sort of stuff. And that's the only way you should use it. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about <laughs> vinegar that's got that kind of maybe scummy looking little funny stuff growing at the bottom of it. It's called the mother. The mother. Yeah. yeah. So again, I could go into, you know, five hours on food additives, preservatives and artificial sweeteners and how they affect your thymus gland and blah, blah, blah. But it's just to give people a quick overview that if you are looking at resolving autoimmune disease... And you're probably already sweating bullets at the profound list of no's and how much limitation that may put on your life. Uh, and we're just talking about diet right now, never mind cleaning supplies and whether or not you should be using a shower. <laughs> um, but that's just to give people that real clear sense of, you know, if you're the referee of your life and you're trying to improve your health, those guys aren't allowed on the field. Hmm. They're just not. Right. So if you're going to go for the do's, <clears throat> lots and lots of healthy protein. Preferably fish. And um, not farmed fish. Never. Never. In fact, you should, by default, have to spend three hours of your life with a placard waving above your head next to a fish farm just to make it, I don't know, a statement. <laughs> anyway, so lots of fish. Uh, when you're going to get uh, things like fowl, like chicken or turkeys and those kind of things, really important to get the whole animal and roast it up. Uh, or spatchcock it, which is a way of cutting the spine out and kind of flattening out the, the bird just to make cooking easier. But you get the skin like crispy. Every square inch of the skin is crispy. It's just incredible. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but that way you have all the bones to make bone broth because bone broth is basically like the, I don't know, sacrament of autoimmune disease. Every day you want to have a nice bowl of bone broth. You know, quick aside here. When I started paying attention to food in the way that you prescribe it, mm -hmm. Um, the idea around bone broth and that sort of stuff. Um, I can remember thinking as a kid watching, you know, some old Western movie or something like that where Buddy was lying in bed and he was like on his deathbed kind of thing and they were just feeding him soup. And I used to think, soup? Who the hell wants to eat soup when they're that sick? Yeah. But apparently, it's good for you. There's a reason why, especially with, you know, old European grandmas, chicken soup is the thing to eat when you're sick because mm -hmm. it was made from the bones mm -hmm. first. You want a happy immune system, it's about the bones. And I just want to throw this out there because it's just my nature to just bring up stuff that might pique interest or challenge a lot of kind of dogma. Because of my association with uh, studying to be a Taoist priest, I have lots of connections with monasteries in Asia and stuff. And it's been twice now, well, two and a half times, that, that's a long story, let's just say twice, where uh, a robed monk has come to live in this town uh, so that I can treat them for this chronic disease and Buddhist monks who will not eat any meat at all will drink bone broth. Hmm. So if you're a vegetarian and you're attached to that for spiritual reasons and a robed Buddhist monk can come to this part of the world for their healing and they drink the bone broth, 
there's a part of me wants to say this really, really irritatingly, so I won't. But I mean, I'm going to say it, suck it up, buttercup. It's time to focus on your health because if you're focused on something that ends in ism and that's stopping you from ingesting the molecules you need to be well, it's not really a good idea, I think, to make those kind of distinctions. And again, that's why I bring up the Buddhist monks because those people are pretty you know, neck deep into their ism and they'll still drink the broth because it's not eating the flesh. Sure. And I think it speaks to the idea that uh, food can be medicine. Yeah. And uh, when um, you take medicine indiscriminately, mm-hmm. um, you know, drugs, whatever it is, that's bad for you. But if you use medicine in a prescribed manner, mm-hmm. uh, it's actually good for you. I mean, that's that's the logic that sort of rattles through my brain when mm-hmm. I think about that. When I yeah. first started uh, on my journey to heal my gut, the idea around having bone broth was pretty disgusting just because of the fact that it was like, Ooh, I got to cook all this stuff. Ugh. You know, all that scunge coming to the top. Ugh. <laughs> but it's like, wait a minute, you know, here's something life giving in a way that is healing me in um, a way that doesn't involve some guy in a white coat telling me here, take these pills. Yeah. And I have nothing against being vegan or being vegetarian. It's just having done this for over 20 years around autoimmune disease, I've never seen anyone who's vegetarian or vegan get through this process quicker than someone who isn't. And in fact, it's always taking longer and um, there's always secondary nutritional issues because not only um, is that diet potentially limiting and or dependent on plant embryos for food, because imagine trying to be a vegetarian or vegan and get all of your nutrients without any seeds, nuts, grains, or beans. Yeah, no. It's not, not, not gonna, gonna it's not, not going to be easy. I yeah. mean, like trying to even, I don't know. Someday I'm going to take like a, a month off and just sit down and figure out how to do it just because my mind works that way. Because you're a nerd. That's yeah. So, <laughs> saw you at the meetings, buddy. What are you talking about? <laughs> Anyways. Anyway. Soup or uh, bone broth good. Bone broth good. Um, and that way you're not wasting animals. And especially if, you know, part of the conversation is around the ethics of using animals for food. I think it's ethically more ethical if you're going to kill something to use every molecule that you can, mm-hmm. you know, instead of, I just want the white breast part, Yeah, you know, and leave all the stuff in the garbage and black. <clears throat> and I'll come back to something akin to that with vegetables in a sec. Anyway, next thing to look at is fats. And um, one default a lot of people have is, well, if I'm going to be focusing on meat and uh, vegetables and, and fat, Um, I might as well focus on animal fats. And that actually turns out to be a bad idea in the sense of I just need to have a big lump of butter at every meal and a big, um, or ghee, which would be clarified butter or bacon grease or, you know, just rendered animal fats. Um, it's better for most people to try and focus on the plant-based fats, you know, coconut oil, avocado, olive oil, and, and things like that, just because, um, high amounts of animal fats can kind of perturb your microbiome as well. And that would be another podcast because it can get really technical, but one benefit of more fats in your diet, um, if they're all balanced is they're all antimicrobial, mm-hmm. right? So if you have a bad, uh, immune system does, uh, function around your gut, cause it's full of this war and your gut's full of holes cause you got a leaky gut and stuff. You want to make sure you're having, you know, something like, a. a a healthy version of an antibiotic to keep your microbiome at least stable, 
right? And we'll see that in a minute uh, from a completely different way. But fats are just a really great source of calories, and they do help uh, on many levels. And when you look at fish oils and and other things around being anti-inflammatory, that's a good idea, which is why the Ice Age diet is mostly around raw fish, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Plants, yes, more please, all kinds, every day, all day. And when you're going to use plants, try and remind yourself to always use the entire plant. So if, if we, let's say we all lived back a hundred years where everyone had a little kind of uh, cast iron stove in their house. So that heats your house. So you might as well have a pot on there because why waste all, all of that heat for just heating when you could be cooking something? Most people would have a big pot on the back of their stove full of the vegetable leftovers that you right. would steam overnight or, or kind of simmer overnight. Take the, the vegetable uh, physical part the next day, throw that in your compost, feed that to your pigs or whatever. And then have that enriching mineral electrolyte broth all day, every day. So when you're going to the store, you know, just fill your basket with all these different plants and commit to trying to use every part of the plant. And here's a fun statistic, and I'm sure I've said this before. When you look at most plants, 70% of the nutrient density is in the part we tend to throw away. Hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking of uh, beets versus beet tops. Yeah, squash versus squash skin. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's just a thing. And we've already talked about bone broth, but I just want to make sure bone broth. Good. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Food is medicine. That's the, that's the key there. So when you're coming to, uh, the long term of this, a big part of the process besides reducing inflammation, repairing the gut, uh, taking care of all those needs is eating more fermented foods and that's not preserved foods. It's fermented. So kimchi, sauerkraut, kefir, kombucha, those kind of things that you can make at home. And you're always going to get so much more out of them when you make them at home, mm-hmm. right? So although it's lo- I love the fact I can walk into the local health food store and buy you know a liter of kombucha that's got a flavor I like, um, but it's nowhere near as uh, enriching, you know, as compared to the stuff a friend of mine makes and gives to me. Sure. There's a, a website that I follow, um, cultured, I think it's cultured food for life. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, this woman talks about how she's introduced cultured foods to every member of her family, including herself to, uh, heal everything from, uh, acne to gut issues to you name it. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, she's got tons of recipes and then she's got all the different gear and gizmos and things you need in order to make stuff. Uh, very interesting. Is, can we, is there a way we can make sure we get that link in the show notes? Uh, yeah, okay. we can just edit. No problem. Yep. Um, so I'm going to add a couple of other things to the show notes as well. One is going to be a thing on how much water to, to drink because that conversation takes about eight minutes and we've already done it before. And I think I already have a YouTube video up on that. So that was the very first podcast we did. That was the very fir- first podcast. Way we back when we were kids. <laughs> a long time ago. So another thing I'll add is a YouTube video uh, in the show notes for what's called having a grandmother day or a batch cooking day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can say, again, being at this for 25 years, um, and sometimes I have a 70-hour week. So it's for me, it's usually like right now, it's Sunday afternoon. It's usually Sunday afternoon that I'm making, you know, two, three hour, you know, frenzy in the kitchen to get all of my, you know, what I call ready meat and root smash and my prepped sort of salad uh, constituents and dressings and dips and all the other stuff that's going to get me through the rest of the week. Yeah. I think the idea that I remember about a grandmother day is something where you're um, consciously and perhaps lovingly 
uh, hopefully lovingly, uh, paying attention to food um, in a committed block of time so that you can um, have that available for the rest of the week so yeah. that when you're presented with uh, the opportunity to make a really bad food decision, um, you don't have a choice, and you look in your fridge and you go, oh, I could have this instead because it's already made. Yep. It's so great. Mm -hmm. And you talk about that uh, at length in your book. Yep. Yeah. So last thing I'll bring up on this sense is juicing because there's a lot of theories and I don't know, podcasters and bloggers and stuff who think this is the way to go. If you are going to go in the direction of juicing, invest the extra couple of hundred bucks and get a masticating juicer because if you're trying to get the most antioxidants out of your juicing vegetables and fruits and you're using something that is such a high velocity engine to tear apart your food into a juice that it's oxidizing your antioxidants well uh. <laughs> <laughs> you're just drinking flavored water <laughs> and there's a lot of sugar that's freed up so right um i don't have anything against juicing i would just say that there's that caveat that you kind of have to do it uh old school or else um, it's not going to work. So that's that. I'll just get rid of that thing there and put this back. Oops. Let's watch Michael Where click on his Anth screen. Where did Anthony go? I'm there. At least I can see myself on my oh, screen. I, anyway. I, I can't see you on mine, so <laughs> there you are. Um, so that that's basically in the long and short of it what the AIP is like, you know. Mm. Um, so it, it, it looks like it's a real, um, simple in some way, uh, approach to paying attention to, uh, what foods you eat. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm sure some people are just, you know, clutching at their little loaf of wonder bread right now, hugging onto it, saying it's saying goodbye. But, um, I'll say for myself that being, uh, addicted to foods in a certain way that weren't necessarily the healthiest for me. And uh, being able to be at peace with the fact that I no longer uh, choose to eat them. I no longer choose to eat that as opposed to, oh my God, I can't have that? Yeah, well, that sucks. That's, you know, the, that's, that's the biggest distinction about this whole thing. Oh, it's so freeing. Yeah. It's so great. You know, to, to, to go through the world not being angry um, around food and I guess at myself ultimately uh, because I can't eat that food. It's yeah. like, you know... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think I would actually be um, better served by uh, being this way for the whole of my life. But if I'd ever, if I'd grown up this way, I don't think I'd have the, as much appreciation for being this way now mm -hmm. as I did when I was a kid. Yeah, and that brings up something that um, just sort of compelled to say, and I don't want to make this any longer than it needs to be, but this does seem worth saying. As a culture, uh, as adolescents coming into adulthood, you know, our, our very direct visceral experience of growth and freedom is being able to say yes to something new. Mm -hmm. So I'm 16 and now my parents say I can have a sleepover or I can get my uncle to get me a case of beer or something like that and no one's going to, I don't know, club me over the head for being a teenager or something and then I can get my driver's license and then maybe I can get my hunting license and then, you know, whatever. But the, the the negotiation with life is I can say something yes, I can say I can say yes to something new. I can say yes to something new. I'm more free, more free, more free. And obviously that's true. When you get into midlife, and it, I think it's still true. Yes, I can go to Hawaii because I saved up enough money to do that and not completely ruin my life. But 
more poignantly uh, for people with chronic health problems or addiction problems or other problems, what happens for most people, and you, you kind of you know alluded to this in a different way, our sense of freedom and autonomy and growth and, and empowerment uh, is what we can say no to. Mm, yeah. But not, not yes, no, like an argument. No, no, thank you, thank you. But no, I'll, I'll live without wheat, dairy, and, you know, commercial eggs or whatever. And I'll, you know, ingest gourmet food every day instead. And um, I mean, that's, that's the hard part for everybody because, you know, I would, we go back to the beginning of the conversation with my little, you know, imaginary glass of scotch and ice, clink, clink, clink honey, I'm home. Aren't we successful entitled, you know, worker bees and, you know, stuff like that, you know, participating in the industrial complex and getting our piece of it. I mean, that's how we got here for sure. But that conditioning is our biggest problem. Mm -hmm. Right. And the stress of those distinctions and all that competitive hierarchy and stuff are such at such a root to why it is people develop these conditions. I mean, I, I, I could easily do a podcast and it may be worth doing someday on how I experience stress in my life and how that directly impacts my immune system and it would for anybody else so that people can really start to tear apart that, you know, conditioning structure in, in their mind. Because mm-hmm. if you're a conditioned workaholic, you know, with addictive habits, which is everybody in the Western world just based on culture, the stress of that for me has been huge. Kind of shift those gears around in my head. Oh, yeah. Holy yeah, for sure. Well, and, and it's, you know, I think for, for the listener and, and um, you know, we've, we've, each, we've each got our own story around um, our own stress story in our lives, right? And uh, knowing what I know now about how it is that I can approach the world um, in a more peaceful, calm manner around uh, my diet. Um, I, I My diet for me has always been this big, albatross around my neck mm-hmm. and now it's kind of like oh hey now it's this like little dicky thing hanging there you know like it's a little <laughs> small cross or something i don't know what it is it's a you know it's it's no longer this thing that controls me and it's uh, the freedom that i have yeah, i think in that moment what came to my mind would be like a badge of honor yeah yeah absolutely yeah, completely changed the entire psychodynamic underlying entitlement and impatience and gratification towards self-support self-care more patience and more just respect Mm. like this is a body it's basically a descendant from primates who went through a pretty interesting series of of, you know hundreds of thousands of years of change and and in the last hundred like it's like a slow motion car accident yeah you know well you you know I'll, i'll say this too that for me to be able to um honestly tell you that I'm not compelled to eat crap foods for me anymore. Um, it's almost as if when I was in that way of being, it was impossible to be think, it was impossible for me to think of being anything else. But I know now the reason why is because um, crappy food equals crappy thought. Crappy food equals um, this in me, and you may have some kind of I don't know, doctor perspective on how this actually makes sense. But um, I know that if I was constantly in that space of not taking care of myself, um, it was a self-feeding, what's what's the word for it? A a cycle, Yep. you know, whereas um, when I gave myself permission to stop doing that, it wasn't easy. But as I began to, as I began to sort of let go of those sort of ideas, all of a sudden 
I was freer and less drawn to being uh, swayed by them. I, I, I can go to a, a party or something like that right now where there's this huge buffet of foods that people have brought in. And I know it's like, oh, that looks interesting. That doesn't. My mouth waters now at certain foods that it never did before. Yeah. Um, and I think that's because my body has finally said, oh, thank God, this guy has got it figured out. Yeah. You know, like um, there's no longer an argument between my personality and my gut. Yeah, I think that the average for that is two years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and like I said, it's been a lifetime kind of story for me. And we've just been talking about it, you know, this little small thin introduction to the whole idea of the autoimmune protocol. But uh, I'm really excited to see how people respond to this. Yeah, and the, another reason I'm bringing this up is, um, and this, this I, I don't know how this is going to sound, so I'll just say what I'm going to say, but I'm aware that it could sound a bit sideways. I'm aware that as an educator through things like blogging and YouTube videos and um, the podcast that we do and a few other things that um, the modern world is basically um, brand centered. Hmm. You know, we want to identify with something, if it's the paleo diet or if it's uh, a certain kind of sport, you know, or, or I don't know, a certain kind of supplement line or certain know, kind of religion, certain kind of religion, the guru we want. Yeah. So the whole idea of ancestral AIP or ancestral autoimmune protocol is going to be kind of basically my brand. I'm going to rewrite my cookbook and it's going to be more about the autoimmune protocol than just an ancestral diet uh, and all that. Because I'm trying to find a way to parallel the autoimmune paleo diet, but to help people step back from the obsession around excessive animal protein, excessive, uh, which for most people by default means you're eating, you know, feedlot animals and, you know, you know, crap bacon or whatever. And there is a certain amount of adolescent glee to like, okay, well, I'm just going to run with this, you know, mm -hmm. good idea that may or may not be a good idea. And I, like, I just like the idea of the ancestral thing because it isn't just one answer. It's at what point in human evolution and your ancestors, um, you know, march across time, you know, what is actually best for you? And the only way to find it is to try one and then another one and then another one until you're like, okay, this is where my genotype or my uh, epigenetics has uh, for, again, whatever reason, the best response to this, you know, palate of food. So... That's why I'm kind of trying to promote that, you know, in that way or say it in that way, because the ancestral AIP is going to be the thing that I'm going to keep referring back to for probably the next two decades as that's my protocol or my paradigm or my brand or my thing around all these diet choices, because it covers all of the evolutionary, you know, particulars, not just the caveman part. And it does, again, kind of rule out the stuff that people make up. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh. It works. And it also gives the people who are, you know, in the sense of our tribe of people that, you know, agree with us and we agree with them about, you know, how things work and what's funny. Uh, that's going to be our peeps. We're going to be the ancestral AI people that just, you know, get the most out of that particular approach to health and, and, and stuff. You get t-shirts? I'm thinking that'd be fun. <laughs> and ancestral AF, just for the heck of it. <laughs> just because uh, JP Sears, what do you have that shirt that said woke AF? So I'm thinking ancestral AF, I like it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a good place to leave it for the Pretty day. much. Yeah, sure. Uh, this is Fusion Health Radio, in case you've forgotten. <laughs> I know I almost have. Uh, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And uh, we like uh, you. Sorry. 
we'd like you to share this podcast with a friend uh, because you are our marketing budget. Uh, getting this uh, information out there, it's been interesting to get some kind of feedback through Facebook. Uh, people tripping over our uh, podcast and going, oh my God, this is awesome. You know, the little ego boost is good, but it's also nice to know that we're uh, helping to improve the health and the well-being of people that are out there. So if you know somebody who could uh, use a boost, uh, please share this with them. And uh, yeah, we're obviously upping our game a little bit, doing our best with new, new toys. Uh, totally committed to this conversation. So if there's anything that for myself as a clinician and for me and Anthony as a couple of guys who have, I think, fun conversations, if there's something you really want us to get into, you know, shoot us a, a note on, say, Facebook or something through the Fusion Health Radio page so that, uh, you know, what we're talking about is what you want to hear us talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that we can get into more goofy stories <laughs> and continue to podcast because this is all kinds of fun. Yep. Uh, you've been listening again, Fusion Health Radio, episode 39. The Ancestral Autoimmune Protocol. Thank you. Ancestral Autoimmune Protocol. I don't know why that didn't stick in my head. Anyways, yeah. um, thanks for listening, folks, and uh, we'll see you in the next podcast. Cook well, eat well, and feel amazing. You can wave. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.